Hi there and welcome to another episode of the Future Ready Podcast where we explore how to build future-ready organizations in a new never normal. My name is Arne Kötting, founder of Cozin and your host. In 2022, organizational change feels more like a constant rather than an exception. Everything is fast-paced and the next big thing always arrives quicker than employees thought it would. Having to deal with new technological innovations and radical changing expectations from all stakeholder groups, leaders may find themselves holding on to constants just to keep themselves sane. But not only is embracing change the way to success, it is also the healthiest thing to do. It is within change and complexity that organizations find the space for unleashing their creative forces and achieving true growth. Our guest in the Future Ready podcast today is here to show us how effective systemic change is something that is both complex and very simple at the same time. Although organizational transformation tends to entail big goals and visions, the steps to getting there can be as small and as humane as slowing down and truly listening to each other. Today I'm joined by Nick Udell, CEO and co-founder of the Nowhere Group. Nowhere is a catalyst for change that works closely with high-level executive to help them achieve peak performance across the board. Now I feel lucky to have Nick on the podcast for two reasons. Firstly, he usually prefers to stay under the radar and doesn't often do podcasts, so you can expect Lots of exclusive insights about organizational design. And secondly, I've had the pleasure to work with Nick in a previous company I was part of. And I've experienced everything that he preaches in practice. I can tell you that it works and it's fascinating. Welcome, Nick, and thank you for joining us on the Future Ready podcast today. Great to be here. Looking forward to it. Thank you. Um, Nick, you have a background in product design. Um, so where did your interest in business transformation um, come from? When, when, did it, uh, when did it arise? Well, yes, that's true. I did, I, and technically, I can design anything from a, a toothbrush to a football stadium. It was my original <laughs> training, uh, so product design background. But okay. very soon after graduating, became I don't know, quite disillusioned with the design world. Um, it, it felt like it had a real arrogance, and a, a monopoly on the creative process. Mm -hmm. um, which I, my experience of designers, including myself, was we weren't particularly more creative than anyone else. We just happened to have a craft or a discipline. Mm -hmm. And so I then um, really wanted to look much more fully into what lies behind creativity. And that led me into my PhD on creativity and consciousness. And as I was doing my PhD, I had the opportunity to start consulting on creativity, visioning, culture in a number of global corporations. When was this? When did you start working with co big corporations on those topics? In the early 90s, when I was thrown in at the deep end with a number of corporates around creativity, design management, innovation, I think I was riding off a trend in design that was called design management then. Mm -hmm. And I happened to be bump into a couple of executives, head of strategy of one company, head of design of another, and just got pulled into the outskirts of large-scale transformation. Mm -hmm. And I think the 
unique bid I was bringing was to think about transformation from a design perspective. How do you design a journey mm. of transformation? So I was completely winging it when I was 22, 23. I had no idea why anyone was listening to me. Mm-hmm. And that then led me into, in parallel with my PhD, just networking into the organizational development and organizational transformation network. So I just became a hungry learner and went out and met these amazing people and who were already doing it. So actually, I think that discipline had been around for at least 10, 15 years. And I happened to stumble across some of the wisdom holders and practitioners and just sucked up every bit of insight and learning and practice I could. Yeah, yeah. um, And read everything I could, um, probably through the early half of the 90s, um, so that it really informed my, my PhD and my research. And and my consulting. And I just got lucky enough to meet some amazing people. Super interesting. So um, you've been around um, in the world of transformation now, as we just learned for many years. Today's world feels, the business world feels, you know, much more, you know, fast paced and frantic uh, over the last 10, 15 years or so, at least my impression, with constantly kind of new transformations being rolled out in organizations do you would you share this observation that um, the pace of change has increased, or would you say, well, in fact, it's always been um, busy? Mm-hmm. It's always a dangerous one to answer that. I do. My sense is it is faster, but it could have always been fast, couldn't it? Um, it's certainly more complex. I mean, I would have said '90s up until 2010 a lot of our work would have included in part how to help organizations come up with vision, a vision or a mission or something to aim for. And then the work was, how do you move from here to there? Mm. So it's quite linear. Mm. And, it, and it's almost like we, it felt like we all had time to be linear. Let's come up with the idea, let's see a better way, and then let's build towards it. I don't think that world exists anymore. Um, I'm, a, I'm not sure I'm a believer in a vision. I'm a believer in visions because I think it, there's going to be multi-dimensional futures and what are the, the different futures that you could go after and that every step on the journey, you'll uncover another sense of that future. It's not linear anymore. Mm. And I think it's very rarely now going to be bound to one organization. I think the boundaries between organizations are blurring. Partnership, collaboration, ecosystems. So it can't just be your vision anymore. Right. Um, so I think the pace of technology, obviously digital, information, speed, the speed of things, how you know virtual, we can now work across t- all time zones, all hours of the day, um, diversity. I mean, I just, you know, the dis how consumers are becoming more discerning, Mm. the level of regulation and risk. Um, I mean, everything's exponentially shifting. And and personally, I think that's really exciting, but it requires a different way of working. Mm. Gone are the lovely linear five, 10-year planning cycles. It's just not good enough anymore. It's a very interesting thought with these uh, multi-visions that should be in organizations. Do you think there is also a risk associated with companies just following one vision or striving uh, to achieve one vision? I think there's multiple risks here. 
Um, one is you, you're p- putting a lot of kudos or you're betting a lot on one one thing if you go with a singular vision. Mm. And if you put all of your effort and resources into a singular aiming point, there's a good chance that a few steps in, you're going to see something better or different. And the world is moving so fast that I think you need to be much more dynamic. I think you need direction, don't get me wrong. I think you need some type of direction you're heading in, some type of North Star. But a singular vision, which has always been a difficult thing to do, I mean, the cliche is obviously to put a man on the moon is the one that everyone talks about. And it's a vision because you can visualize the moment it happens, Mm -hmm. i.e. when those feet step on the moon. Most visions aren't visions. They're pseudo mission statements Mm -hmm. and then turn into corporate jargon and don't really then elevate or unlock anything. Mm -hmm. They actually become a bit of a weight, I think, around organizations or senior leaders' legs. But to have visions of the future, what are the different types of visions and possibilities you could go after? And step by step, you're refining those visions, shifting them, evolving them, so that you're raising your gaze all the time. The point of a vision for me is to raise your gaze, to unify, to bring us together in our diversity towards a common direction and goal. And I may be part of multiple visions. That's the exciting bit. Nick, we talked about the speed of change and the complexity of change that has been massively increased. Now, tell us a little bit about how you typically work with your clients. What are the questions they have and how do you think the questions from your clients have emerged over the last years? That is probably in flux at the moment. Now, we've always been a very small specialist organization, so we don't need a lot of clients every year. We, we typically partner with four to six, four to eight clients a year, and they're often multiple year journeys. So, yeah, it's we've been very lucky, but we also see in the market a growing frustration where doing more of the same isn't working. Um, How we would describe it is the push model of performance, drive, 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 now, 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 is reaching a ceiling. And we're seeing more and more organizations hit that ceiling and not know what to do next. So, you know, typical symptoms of that is organizations that are time poor, um, energy poor, uh, where they confuse busyness with productivity where you see their performance paradigm pits their health against their performance and stifles creativity at every turn. Um, You see greater levels of fragmentation and silos. They all start talking about psychological safety or lack of, and it becomes one of the big things everyone's talking about at the moment, and they talk about it as opposed to pay attention to how to do it. Um, these cultures that are hitting the ceiling often have one speed fast now, now, now go, go, go. And don't really, haven't really understood how to, when you get to breakthrough and, and this other level of performance, different model of performance, you need to shift the way you work with time and speed. Um, and then you obviously see all of the other, you know, that leads to risk aversion, mediocrity, fear driven cultures, unhealthy cultures and organizations and a lot of our passion and excitement and why we get out of bed is we believe that 
fundamental performance paradigm is broken. It's not fit for purpose in today's complex, fast-moving world. And we're interested in, and have been, how do you develop practices that help organizations and ecosystems of organizations move into this other, what we would call a pull model of performance, where it's much more time-rich, energy-rich, it's much more integrated. You're working with a much more integrated model rather than a siloed model. Um, you're learning how to work with multiple speeds, when to speed up, when to slow down. So your performance is based on a breakthrough recovery cycle rather than just push harder. Um, deeply psychologically safe, not just in theory, but in practice, because this is about iteration, emergence, continuous feedback mechanisms, unlocking the power of teams and communities um, at scale. So it ripples through a system. Um, and these types of cultures whether you sustain them or you create these microcultures for us around a specific challenge um, are deeply healthy, actually. We find that people's health increases. So when you're working at your performance and creative edge, it's intrinsically rewarding. It seems to nourish people. You need to learn how to step out and recuperate, but they seem to, by working at your edge, it seems to, um, people pay much more attention to their fitness, taking care of themselves because they love being in that zone, in that flow. So you see personal responsibility go up, you see collective responsibility go up. Yeah, and it's just much more energizing to be part of. So you get energy from it rather than energy depletion. I am very intrigued by your thought about speed and um, recovery. Because I think this is so important um, these days. Many of the organizations that I am experience, um, they more than ever now feel tired. They feel worn out. And I do think that people or no companies, organizations need to take care of their corporate energy. And the fact is currently, and I see this with worry, that... It's just always more, 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 more speed, more projects, uh, more output. And I don't think there is enough time for recovery for an organization or within a system. Do, would you agree? Absolutely. I think this, this is particularly crucial in the time we are in now. I think this phenomenon has, is spinning out of control because of covid virtual, remote working, hybrid working. You know, I think boundaries have blurred. People are working even harder, back-to-back -back meetings. The boundary between work and life is blurred completely. And, I, yeah, I, we get enormous amount of feedback around fatigue, exhaustion. Um, and yet, at the same time, if you put that in context of what I said earlier, but then we're being forced to push, 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 harder, 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 and that more, 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 now, 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 because the performance paradigm itself is breaking down. And actually, we are, as we start to see the travel coming back and we're getting invited in to now help people transition into you know, in how to introduce new ways of working so they don't just come back to the office and back to old ways of working. How do they come step forward into new ways of working that are more catalytic, more creative, more sustainable, more scalable, more personable, etc. I could go on. This is a really exciting time. And 
just, I mean, I'm seeing a lot of senior leadership groups saying, you know, just wanting to meet up, slow down, reflect on what the last two years has been like. I mean, there's been enormous highs and lows. There's been enormous pain and emotional and physical cost in the last couple of years. And there needs to be an outlet. But so a lot of our work at the moment is, in, you know, people are obviously, well, certainly our client and networks are all wanting to lean into this moment and have done for the last two years is seeing this as an opportunity to accelerate change, innovation and transformation. But as the world opens up and we're getting more to more face to face with senior groups, we are finding it absolutely critical to get them to slow down and reflect on the last two years before we start doing the work about moving forward. Mm. So, so it seems that organizations are at a kind of an, a moment, a unique moment of opportunity. They either go back to what they've always did and ignoring the experience of the last two years, or they take it as an opportunity to pause, reflect and make it better. Well, yes. And so th this is amplified by this current moment in time. And go back to what you said earlier. I think the busyness now, 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 push, push, push um, energy that I think is the wider paradigm breaking down. The danger is you can you get busy. You get busy doing stuff. I, I would say a lot of our clients, I often say to them, you're just doing lots of stuff. People are regurgitating and throwing stuff into the organization. They're, they're creating this stuff to just justify their existence. Half of it you don't need to be doing. But it's just the way that people defend their bits mm. that, you know, just create this noise in this, you know, I think there should be a stuff amnesty in organizations. But that's really difficult because, you know, people are having to hold up their hands and go, I'm not sure what I do adds any value anymore. Yeah. But we're not short of the need for talent and work. It's just a different type. And Busyness means that a number of things. I'm busy doing my bit, but I don't really connect my bit to your bit. Mm. And therefore, the chances are they never join up and create the multiplier effect. I'm just creating stuff. Mm. I could really dedicate my stuff, my, my work to what I'm working on. Mm -hmm. And it could be the wrong thing. How do I know it's the right thing? So I could be busy doing things that are no longer really adding value and or making it more complicated for others. I see this. We see this going on all the time mm. and so actually teaching people to slow down it's almost the antithesis i see lots of achiever leaders just kind of put their arms up in the air and despair when i say this but you need to slow down to go fast you need to slow down to reflect to really understand what's going to move the dial because it's typically not going to be more of the same mm. so to slow down increase the quality of contact of listening to be able to take the way you think and think together to a new level so you can see much more elegant ways forward mm. and much more efficient and effective ways forward. But if you don't put in the pause or slow down, you don't see these more elegant pathways. Mm -hmm. You can't just do new thinking. <laughs> and you can't do new thinking when you're not in quality relationship. Mm -hmm. And we mm. need to repair, build the relationships because I think a lot of the last two years has been at the cost of contact and trust, belonging, care, mm. humanity. And you can't do great work without that relational quality container. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I think we're in this unique moment where this is the time to over-invest in over, yeah. care, humanity, contact, trust. But when it comes down to doing this type of work, 
in the micro sense, there are simple things that make the difference. It's down to the quality of listening, the quality of presence, the um, ability to give and receive candid feedback. Um, there are some. There is probably about eight or ten, maybe twelve, what we call micro skills that we see in any team or culture that is doing breakthrough work. It's a repeated pattern, and it is often down to the leader who has to lead the way. He doesn't have to role model by being the best, but has to role model by having a go. Mm-hmm. And without that, because the leader is so symbolic in these moments, you know, if we talk about psychological safety and the leader's wanting to talk about psychological safety, but I can in the same moment feel psychologically unsafe, yeah. even though he or she is preaching psychological safety. And even down to, we do a lot of work teaching leaders how to enter a room. So literally just teaching leaders how you enter the, literally a physical room wow. or a virtual room. And how you walk through that door is either going to put people on edge or people at ease. Give us a little sneak preview into what you recommend to your clients in terms of how to enter a room in the well, right They have to experiment with it. So for me, it's how, you know, literally as you're walking, it could be entering a room, by the way, it could be entering the floor of your office as you come out of the elevator. Um, any moment where you enter where you enter a conversation for this first time. So these moments of entering will, I say, will either unlock energy and yeah. attract people or decrease energy and repel people. And so often it's if that leader is in their body and has, we teach them how to slow down, take a pause, hold a breath, walk through, eye contact, the softness of their movement. If they come in, for example, flustered and throwing stuff at the table, and uh-huh. <laughs> I'm immediately at edge and going, oh my God, what's going to happen? Yes. If that leader comes in and has, has a quiet center, is able to connect with me and remind me, oh, did you, you know, I know you were doing this this weekend. And just, you know, just that softness, that humanity right. creates, creates the energetic space for us to then connect and meet and do great work. If I'm at my edge because you've come in and you're flustered and, and it got you know some emotion is baggage is coming with you or I've come out of the you've come out of this other meeting really frustrated and you bring that into this room, we all will feel it and we will all orientate towards it and often close down. Now we mentioned um, the need um, for organizations to be more creative, to be more innovative. Now let's explore a little bit how ideas are typically developed. There are many tools and techniques to develop ideas um, in organizations, many of them with quite a shelf life, such as brainstorming sessions. How effective do you think these practices are indeed do they still working or do they have their limitations when it comes to creating real innovation and breakthroughs? You're going to get me into trouble. Let me see if I can be a little bit more mindful rather than just emotional about that question. So obviously going back to the beginning, I was trained as a product designer and my design training was, here's a brief, go off and come up with lots of ideas. Right. So... Go off and, and I don't think I was ever taught about how to come up with lots of ideas. It was assumed that come up with lots of ideas. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, that could include going to do some research and go and listen and learn and go and experience something. Go and understand the problem itself is always a good thing. Um, and come up with ideas. And then 
I would have a deadline as a design student or as a designer. And I needed by that deadline to come up with three ideas because you never went in with one idea. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know quite know why, but you come up with three ideas and you typically have your preferred one, but of you course. diligently go off and present all three and probably emphasize the one you're most excited by consciously or unconsciously. Now, obviously, at the time when I was doing my research and PhD, there was um, Edward de Bono in the six hats, there was brainstorming, and there's lots of these techniques where you go off and, you know, do lateral thinking and push your thinking and against the clock. And ultimately, it was a numbers game. You, you, your job is to come up with as many ideas as possible in a certain amount of time in the hope that you'll come up with one or two good ideas. Mm-hmm. Now, I suppose 10 years later from that, so I know I'm, I'm and certainly in my PhD, I'm going, this surely can't be the best way of doing it. And part of my PhD was how you looked at shifts in consciousness, whether it was in spiritual traditions or scientific t- traditions, and where does the aha come from? What is the process mm-hmm. that gets you to an aha, an insight, a moment of breakthrough, as opposed to just lots of ideas? Mm-hmm. And my fear has always been that ideation is great if you're just looking at extending an existing idea or product development yeah great ideation is great come up with lots of ideas you'll probably find one or two that are interesting and just get on it but most of our work and my work has been how do you get to a real level of breakthrough where you see a different way forward and it's often happens in a moment of insight breakthrough you could call it aha moments and i'm interested and i've always been interested in how you don't just do that individually but collectively mm-hmm. so the just to add to the complexity of this how do you make creativity and collective insight and wisdom coming from the masses not the masses that's wrong from the wider collective intelligence not just for my my individual focus and attention and so for me there's i've always believed there's a difference between ideation and insight ideation is the brainstorming of lots of ideas within the existing norm yeah and insight is breaking free of the existing norm and and it's a vertical movement it's a movement up where you gain a wholly new perspective and it repatterns your thinking so another way of describing it is we could spend the next couple of hours brainstorming we'll have a fantastic time we come up with lots of ideas and the chances are we come back and look at it tomorrow and go, well, that was a load of crap. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds familiar. Um, and so we get caught up in the moment, group think, all very attractive and energizing. And I say, if we're lucky, we'll come back tomorrow and there might be one or two things that have got something to them. Um, and for me, that's a really inefficient way of working. And what I was passionate about is how can you decode and choreograph, actually by design, moments of breakthrough. And... When in that moment of breakthrough, two things happen. One, you get the innovative output, a new strategy, a new product, a new service, a new business model, and you you see something that has real value and can make a difference. It's something other than you, the yeah. creation. But in that moment, the other component of a breakthrough and insight moment is that you are transformed. You can no longer go back and think what you thought before. You have literally rewired 
and research would now say your neurons have literally rewired. Right. And you cannot go back and think what you thought before. Your belief system has changed. You have seen the light and you can't go back. Okay. And now the power of this individually is really important, but the power collectively is phenomenal. When you get groups or communities having these collective moments of breakthrough where they all see a more elegant way forward and it repatterns their collective thinking and action, it is such a much more elegant way of working. Right. Because also everyone now has ownership of the movement in a very different way. And the movement forward, the momentum it creates is massive, as opposed to me coming up with a, an idea and then having to sell it to you. Right. And then sell it to you and then sell it to you and sell it to you. And it's kind of like, by the time I've sold it to everyone, it just diminishes its energy and it's probably being confused and compromised in every way, yeah. shape or form. Talking about the development of breakthrough ideas, how do you help organizations to tap into their collective wisdom? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. So there's an, uh, so you're immediately talking to a belief system. Do you believe there's a wider collective intelligence? We could spend hours on that one. Uh, and obviously, practically, just the collective intelligence of a group. So let, let me explain that in a couple of ways. <clears throat> so most teams, and, most teams aren't actually teams. They're reporting lines. Mm -hmm. And if you imagine that, it's a hub and spoke model where the leader sits in the middle And everyone has a reporting line in. And so it's more like the spokes of a wheel coming to the hub and the hub is the leader. Okay. And so actually the team doesn't have a lot in common other than the leader. The problem with that is that, and, the, and, it's, and, and it's a very exciting place to be for the leader because they're at the center of everything. Yeah, they love it. And it's very addictive. And in the worst case scenario, that leader is then taking up the space with their big brain and their cap massive capability, and sometimes their big ego. The cost of this is it de-skills everybody mm -hmm. and or it often splits the team, which isn't a team, it's a pseudo team, into those that agree with the leader and those that don't agree with the leader. Mm -hmm. So you often create an in-crowd and an out-crowd. And that's how most teams are, not teams and are dysfunctional, <laughs> dysfunctional groups. The problem with that is you're not tapping into the intelligence of the collective. You are The leader is selecting intelligence from individual leaders at any one moment, giving whatever is the agenda of the leader. What we do a lot of work is, is teaching the leader to step out of the middle and hold the space where everyone can turn up in their diversity and difference. So instead of going through the leader, the leader is holding the space for every combination of relationship in that team to be unlocked. Mm -hmm. So now I'm, uh, I have the ability as a team member to connect to everyone in any combination rather than with or through the leader. And I mean that both metaphorically and physically mm -hmm. because the leader typically gets in the way. So how does the leader then hold that space? And we do a lot of work teaching leaders how to hold these spaces where you allow difference and diversity to fully turn up, where through the quality of contact and listening and presence of the leader and the team, you're unlocking every creative combination in that team, which is exponential, by the way, because it's now to the power of N minus one. Mm -hmm. So the number of people in the team minus myself, I've suddenly got an exponential of number of connections that I can unlock. And as I start to unlock connections and we, and we start to challenge that group to go into the unknown, 
and ride what we call the roller coaster. So you get out the wisdom of the whole, that what they know already, but then teach them to move beyond what they know. So they're all moving into the unknown. And the challenge is, as soon as we move beyond what we know individually or collectively, we start to misbehave as human beings. Mm -hmm. As soon as we're out of our comfort zone, we start to play the expert or we start or emotional drama takes over or our insecurities take over or power plays start to, you know, come into the space. There's lots of what we call distorted behaviors that happen when human beings step out of their comfort zone. Okay. And that's the job of the leader is to hold the space where you as the leader are and the human dynamic in the room is greater than the is larger than the greatest distraction or distortion that's playing itself out. And then you can hold the tension and leverage it in quite an Aikido way. The, the creative inherent tension that happens when you're out of your comfort zone is the energy you need to break free, mm-hmm. to unlock the new thinking. So instead of kind of coming in and the tension increases and the leader comes in and saves the day or reduces the tension Actually, how do you hold it with care and respect? Because it's that energy that unlocks and helps us, catapults us to the next level of thinking. Mm. So there's a very simple equation for us. You have to increase, you have to be energy rich to play this game. So we pay a lot of attention to how the leader works with their energy and notices energy. So if you're depleted and exhausted, you can't play this game. So you've got to pay attention to your health and well-being of you and your team. So you've got to be energy rich to work at your edge. You've got to deepen the quality of relationship because every relationship erodes every time you're not attending to it. So you have to always pay attention and rebuild the quality of relationship, the quality of contact, build trust, psychological safety. It should be happening every day in every meeting. Because once you've got the energy and the quality of relationship, now we're ready to think and think something new together rather than regurgitate old thoughts, defend positions, hang on for dear life to what I already know. Right. But to me, um, you know, you mentioned the critical role of the leader um, to do that. It sounds quite sophisticated or quite an ask for leaders. I, you know, to be honest, I, I don't know how many, I don't want to step on anybody's shoes, but how many leaders I've seen who could, you know, who who do really feel comfortable with holding the tension and not trying to get rid of the tension because it feels uncomfortable. Um, leaders who really feel comfortable in the unknown, not knowing all the answers. And you know, many That's, senior what leaders. What you just said is massive. What you just said is massive. Leaders have been taught to know the answers. And in today's world, you can't know the answer. Exactly. It's too complex, too fast moving. So, yeah, I agree. Is it a big ask? So it's a big ask if you set the challenge and don't give them the support. Mm-hmm. I think that I'm constantly surprised by how many leaders, once they've stepped in and say, I want to learn how to do this, can do it and can do it well, and um, if arguably even amazingly. Mm-hmm. But it is a moment where they have to step forward and say, I need to learn a different way. And then teaching them a different way is actually not that difficult. It's them wanting to be a hungry learner again. And, you know, it's one of the conundrums at the top of organizations. I mean, most of our work is at, with senior executive leaders. And 
yeah, I mean, there's a good proportion of them that go, well, I've, why do I need to learn anything new? I'm at the top of the system. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and even see kind of development or coaching as a kind of, have they done something wrong? Mm-hmm. <laughs> as, as opposed to, how surely as leaders, we can all learn to grow and be better. There's always a better way and should always be open to learning and growing. And yet, I say, once we teach people this difference between holding space and taking up space and actually teaching them the DNA of how to hold space, one of the, one of the things that is critical to the nature of holding space is when your team or the community you're holding the space for surprises you. They don't just do what you think. They mm-hmm. surprise you and delight you and deliver stuff way beyond what you could have imagined. Mm-hmm. So they don't just kind of deliver on the task. They exceed it and excel and surprise you and excite you with what they're doing. That's down to a leader holding the space for that to happen and teaching people how to do that. And once they start to see their team or group exceed their expectations, start doing things in a much more efficient, productive and creative way, it's very addictive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and often they kind of go, oh, I want to do that again. I want to do that again. How do I do that again? And suddenly, it's they, you know, they start to put in the disciplines and the practice to make this repeatable and scalable. Mm-hmm. And then you start to see members of their team saying, I'm going to do this with my team. So mm-hmm. actually, in this point, it becomes quite a ripple. Once you've shown people the DNA of how to do it and have given them an experience of it, this is really important to everything we stand for, mm-hmm. is I can tell you about the theory of this, but I'm much more interested in the practice of it. Mm. All, all we focus on is practice, practice, practice. We give our leaders just enough theory. I mean, I have an image of a group, let's say, last week that I, I met for the first time, and I might give them half an hour of theory all right. about what we're going to do and how we're going to do it differently. They will typically look at me and go, what are you talking about? Um, this is, you know, oh, more, more concepts, more theory. But I'm saying, look, I'm just giving you enough information so that when I give you a new experience, you've got a reference point. Mm-hmm. So I'm giving you the scaffolding of a new experience. And then I'm, and then basically I jump straight in and give them a, an experience of this way of working, which is much more about holding space, riding the roller coaster, deepening contact, deepening the listening, getting to moments of breakthrough, patterning those moments of breakthrough. Mm-hmm. And once they have the experience of it, they're going, why didn't I learn this 20 years ago? And actually, how do I start doing this with my team? So even last week, you know, 20 people have all said, well, I'm going to go and take these, this DNA and this way of working to my own leadership team. And we're all going to go and practice it over the next two months. And we'll come back and share our learning. I recently read this interesting study where one finding was that leaders would like to give away responsibility. Um, do you also observe uh, this sense of um, fatigue um, amongst leaders and are you worried that in a time where actually leaders need to step up to be able to solve ever more complex challenges that they're actually you know you know do not step step up but feel actually tired and um, and avoid you know responsibility are you worried about that at one end of the spectrum when we start a journey by introducing these more catalytic ways of working, we often start with the individual self-care. Mm-hmm. So eating well, sleeping well, the basics, drinking, high, 
making sure you're hydrated, not being carb heavy when we're doing this work. There's basic building blocks to attending to your energy. There's then, we then teach them um, an energetic framework of what are the types of energies that replenish them and will build them energy and what are the types of energy states and mind kind of world views that will deplete them and will put them into a a, a vicious cycle of energy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we we often teach them this framework as a way of attending to their own energy states and then attending to the energy states of their team and or functional organization. You can work with this model on and this practice on every level. Mm-hmm. Once they have understood and can see these energy states, they, they can be much more choiceful about being how to be energy rich as opposed to how to easily be energy poor. And you're absolutely right. To do this type of work, you need to be energy rich. You need to know how to replenish your energy personally and how to attend to the energy of a team or a community because to ride these kind of creative roller coaster journeys, whether it's, you know, large scale in in complex challenges or everyday operational challenges you want to be riding this roller coaster with the highs and lows of the known and the unknown and the insights and the glimpses and the patterns it's just a much more effective way than pushing but it does require the leader to attend to themselves on behalf of the whole Mm -hmm. you have to be fit Um, it takes an enormous amount of energy to hold a group through a creative journey Mm -hmm. because by the very nature of the group, it will push back. Every system wants to hold on to the status quo energetically, unconsciously, and it resists change. It doesn't mind change. It just resists being changed. Mm -hmm. And there's, so there's, there's often enormous pushback and you need the leader or the core leadership team at that point to hold a quiet center bit in an Aikido way, it's kind of like instead of getting knocked off center by the resistance, how do you use that energy and funnel it back into the organization to unlock new thinking? So you, we have we pay a lot of attention to leaders uh, leading through their body. So we do a lot of work around how leadership comes through your body and how if you don't do it consciously, it comes out unconsciously and people can see it in your body language, how, you know, if you're holding the the tension, the anxiety, the fear, it will come out in your body and people will be picking it up. So teaching leaders how to use their body as an instrument differently. You'll be surprised how by teaching leaders four or five ways of using their body differently, you can unlock the power of a team just through body and breath. Um, And it sounds mad, but over and over again, I have senior leaders and I'm going, my God, why didn't I know that? I mean, just off, you know, simple things like, a group will typically, when it's in a conversation or a discussion, will t- people will typically look at the leader all the time mm-hmm. and see if I'm saying the right thing or not saying the right thing, and it becomes a hub and spoke by default. It doesn't become a collective conversation. It becomes a, a conversation with and through the leader. And particularly if that leader leads through ego and fear, they'll only look at the leader. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's you know, um, now... Hopefully they're not leading like that. But there's, you're always looking for the unconscious permission or approval of the leader. Mm-hmm. And how does the leader become part of the thinking process rather than the judge or jury or 
barometer of whether we're having the right conversation. And that's a real, a real challenge for leaders. So they need to pay attention to the energy, but they need to pay attention to their place. I, I'm, you trigger another thought for me, which is the number of times I've had CEOs say to me, well, maybe I should step out of this conversation. Mm-hmm. Just let the team or the group have the conversation without me because I'm either going to dominate the conversation yeah. because I know the answer or I'm going to just be quiet and it's going to be a bit odd and I'm just going to let them speak. Mm-hmm. And I, a number of times I go, why is it an either or? Why can't you go in there and think with them? Mm-hmm. Rather than give them the answer or not give them the answer, how do you go in there and think something new together? Mm-hmm. And it doesn't seem to be a common muscle. No, it's really odd. And I'm just going, you know, and it's kind of like, and it's really important that you share your thinking at the front end, knowing it's not the complete thinking, because if you don't, they know you're withholding your thinking, and then they're going to be worried: Are we going to live up to your thinking? Mm-hmm. And in a worst case scenario, the leader will come in and say, "You didn't live up to my thinking, so I should have just told you the answer in the first place." Mm-hmm. And so this leads creates massive confusion and mixed messages all the time, which makes it psychologically unsafe. So, you know, another way of joining some of the dots of what your questions is, there's an energetic state that that leader needs to hold and they need to, it's a real discipline to hold that, to be clean, to be bright, to have taken, make sure that our, my energy is clean and bright and not distracted, distorted. You know, I'm holding on to something from some other meeting. How do I really hold that cleanness as a leader? And how do I bring that energy to bear to a group, a conversation in a way that builds and unlocks as opposed to dominates, cuts across, undermines? You know, it's, it's... One level, this is really simple stuff. (laughs) It's teaching leaders how to do these simple things well. So what is the role of communicators or HR practitioners within an organization to widen this experience from or extend this experience from within the boardroom to the entire organization? How can they help? What's their role in shaping this creative, innovative, curious culture? Now, your question, which is... (laughs) provoking me as well, as I know you're being cheeky, around HR and comms, communications functions. So historically, I would say over the last 25 years doing this work, it's a mixed bag. Sometimes you'll find HR functions are fantastically exciting partners, and sometimes they are, they just get in the way. (laughs) And most of our work is with the executive team as opposed to through HR. And that's not sometimes it's through HR. Now, I think HR has a unique time at the moment. And so I would say this is the time for HR to leap in. Um, And let me just give you a logic for that. So we're seeing the classic kind of services and systems of HR are all being digitized and automated. Um, There's some amazing technology coming you know, chatbots, holographic um, support. It's just going to be amazing. So all of those classic systems and functions and processes are all going to be automated and digitized. 
So the HR business partners can no longer be the gatekeepers to that. In fact, the HR operations and HR services functions who are often hidden in the back rooms mm-hmm. in call centers are now becoming um, the first port of call. They're becoming the f- front face of HR to the organization mm-hmm. by the very nature of the, this technology shift that's going on. Which means that the business partners can no longer be the gatekeepers to all of this, these signature processes and processes and platforms. And they're going to have to find a new place. And at a time when we're seeing organizations and cultures hit this ceiling, and where the thing that will help organizations and teams and leaders move to the next level of performance is to how you come in and help leaders unlock the energy and creativity and diversity of their teams and functions. Mm -hmm. There is a perfect space for HR to step in and go, we are the experts in unlocking human potential, as opposed to monitoring it or measuring it to the nth degree and putting in these cumbersome processes. So HR almost has always said, we need a seat at the table. It's almost like you need a seat to help hold that space Mm-hmm. to help leaders do surprisingly exciting work. And this is where we see HR business partners, and we do a lot of work teaching HR business partners how to let go of the old mindset and step into this more catalytic role. Mm-hmm. How do they step into being catalytic? And I think there is this unique moment where HR could really claim a differentiated transformational space. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the outstanding question is, that means letting go, mm-hmm. having humility, um, surrendering the old success paradigm and the power plays. And if they could, and when they do, and we see a mixed bag at the moment, it's almost like couldn't be more exciting for HR. The three communities in HR have this unique moment to step up to a whole nother level of impact, not activity and busyness, but impact. You know, HR services turning up to be a service provider in a digital automated self-service light touch way mm-hmm. where information is going to be king flowing data makes life analytic. easier actually yeah it's kind of like you know like my banking app it's yeah. much easier yeah. for me to use my banking app than it is to go into the bank right well actually this is where it's all going to go and this is a beautifully exciting pioneering place for hr services you've got hr centers of excellence and expertise who need to in light of that radically simplify their cumbersome signature processes and hold them with a lightness of touch in a more joined up way to be sensors of the future. And then you have the HR business partners who are the the point of the spear or the arrow, who need to learn how to be catalytic and how to pay attention to the human dimension of their clients, teams, and communities. And how do you help those teams and communities surprise themselves, Mm -hmm. work in more creative and catalytic ways that dramatically increase not just productivity, innovation, energy, but performance to wholly new levels. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. this is the, this is the, the moment mm-hmm. to grab. Yeah, um, it's how exciting. It's super exciting, and, and 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 you know we have also listeners, many listeners coming from the corporate comms side, and and one of the things that that caught my attention when you described the um, the new mindset of the leaders, you used words like being clean, lean, focused. You know, stop. You know, stop. You know, replicating noise. I mean, it even sounds to me as if this is also the call for corporate comms: being clean, being focused, or helping at least the organization to focus on what matters. 
yeah, again, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna tread carefully on this one. It's a hot topic for me. Again, I am not as well thought through on this one. And so I wanna be careful because I, I do believe that there is a unique moment for internal comms. Let me be very clear. I mean, external comms is a different conversation um, for internal comms. I see a lot of internal comms still driven by a message-based communication paradigm where they are bombarding the organization with messages, which is creating almost like this white noise in organization. And a lot of people just switch off unless it comes from the CEO or some key figurehead where their ears will be alert and it's almost like they're sacred and therefore you wouldn't even argue with them. And particularly when you've got CEOs being encouraged to do lots and lots of social media and share, share more about your lives and all of that, I think there's some really interesting components to what's happening at the moment. And a lot of it is, mis, is messy mm-hmm. and mixed messages. But I think this paradigm of bombarding it with messages and messages and messages and doesn't help people discern the signal from the noise anymore. And then I think it's getting worse. I think in the lack of response, in the sense of because I've communicated with people, they should just get on and do. That's not how human beings work. I think then they start to shout. So it's not just messaging, it's shouting messages. Mm -hmm. And then the, the, the comms department start to own the narrative and start to say to leaders, oh, you can't say that, you can only say this. And so actually you start to disempower leaders, which and some leaders quite like that. I don't have to worry about the comms. But I think this is very, very dangerous where the comms start to run the show. And I'm seeing this more and more and more. And it really scares me. It it's, means that most of this messaging gets sanitized. It becomes corporatized. There's no nuance. There's no emotion. There's no diversity of personality. There's no authenticity in the communication. It's just cleaned and overly cleaned. And, and, and actually, I would argue, becomes a bit meaningless Mm-hmm. And it's such a shame when this is the time when you're taking an organization through a deep transformation. Communication is such an important part of it. But it's not from an input point of view. It's from an outcome point of view. So when you're taking communities or cultures or on a journey, you need to get them to go through different phases. They need at some point to be inspired. So when is my communication, the impact I'm trying to have, inspiring the right community? When am I disrupting them and putting them on edge and making them uncomfortable? When is the communication designed to show that we're listening and learning? When is the communication there to create shared understanding? There are different types of outcome or impact when you're taking human beings on a journey. And it's not all, rah, rah, happy, happy, nice, nice. (laughs) It doesn't work. It does the opposite. It sanitizes and flatlines everybody. And actually, I think there's a real moment here where comms could move from input-based to outcome-focused mm-hmm. and realizing that they need to help their different leaders help their people go through the different phases of change. And then if I add it on and I get even more excited by it, then I think we're in the information age. How do you start to put information in formation? How do you create learning and knowledge and flow? Mm-hmm. And I think comms need to play a part in that. I think that's a great area to partner up with HR and to create these learning organisations where information, data, analytics and metrics are part of the comms paradigm. 
Super interesting. Really, really interesting time. But I'm scratching the surface of it yeah. and probably being very naive and dangerously honest. <laughs> That's great. You just mentioned your own as a company. You're having also your own transformation, your own shift. You want to tell us a little bit about that, what you are having, um, you know, about your own journey and why you're doing that? Sure. And it's still new. So um, I'll do my best. So we've spent 25 years, 20, we're 25 years old next year even though the group that founded it and formed it were probably working together three or four or five years before that mm -hmm. and most of our work has been to, well our passion is to develop this catalytic practice these ways of working leading and meeting that unlock new levels of performance impact innovation so we've been developing a practice we've had the privilege of applying that practice pretty exclusively to a small number of clients each year and as i say I can't believe the, the opportunities we've had. And yet, we've also real, and because we don't have to market and sell stuff, we've always got a kind of got a waiting list or a short list. And we've had the privilege of codifying this practice and evolving this practice year on year. So it's a every month it evolves and gets better, and we learn something new. So it's not dogmatic. But I think we've been had enough of clients come to us now and organizations say, look, you need to share the practice more, not just the application of it. And I suppose what we've been exploring in the last few years is how to share it at scale in a more inclusive, open way. And we've been experimenting with how to do that. And it takes us into our out of our comfort zone because it means that we have to come out of the metaphoric shadows working behind the scenes and stand up and be seen. And all the risks and wonders and challenges that come with that is wholly new to us. And maybe a stupid thing we're going to do, but we are going to, we are making this these practices more available. I mean, we've learned how to introduce them to organizations at scale. And I suppose we're now just going to see if we can open it more widely. Nick, thank you so much for your time today. It was really a, a pleasure and super inspiring. My head is steaming, burning, a uh, lot of food for thought. Thanks a lot. Pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Hey there. Thank you for listening to Future Ready. Future Ready is produced by Cozin, a global communications and change agency on a mission to shape more healthy and thriving businesses. Find out more at wearecozin.com. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a review or forward this show to someone who you think will love it. I thank you for that. My today's quote comes from Lin Yutang. Besides the noble art of getting things done, there is the noble art of leaving things undone. The wisdom of life consists in the elimination of non-essentials. 